Welcome to Link to Hope, a podcast from Kentucky Cancer Link. I'm your host, Ben Keaton. Until there's a cure for cancer, Kentuckians need hope today. Link to Hope is a monthly podcast featuring experts discussing ways to remove barriers for Kentuckians in need of screenings, diagnosis, and treatment for cancer. In this episode, we're talking about an innovative approach to increasing cancer screenings across Kentucky. We will be joined by Elizabeth Holsclaw with ACS Can and Aaron Cruz Deer with the University of Kentucky School for Public Health. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to bring in Melissa Carr with Kentucky Cancer Link to talk about today's episode. In this episode, we are talking with Bridget Kalin, a Kentucky-based artist and musician and longtime friend. Bridget has experienced cancer both as a caregiver and patient and brings a unique perspective to the conversation. I hope you enjoy what she has to say and make sure to check out her music on your favorite music platform. Bridget, thank you for joining us today. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, for those that uh, are listening, Bridget and I have known each other for years. Um, I'm always inspired by her story and her cancer journey has been um, a trying one, um, but also one that I think is inspiring for the for the community to to learn more about. So wanted to have her on today to talk about that. Um, so Bridget, can we um, can we start at the beginning? Uh, the beginning start with your diagnosis um and uh let's let's talk about your journey okay uh i'm gonna try to be very focused here so my diagnosis was a struggle to get and i think that's sort of the kind of big point of my story here and what i like to share with people is that so many people are dismissed about their uh when they have symptoms or when they have just a, a gut feeling about something and for me, this I wasn't diagnosed until September of 2020, um, but my first symptom was well over a year before. And when I went to my doctor, um, well, I should say this that visit was right on the heels of both of my parents' deaths, and they they died back to back of cancer in 2018 and 2019. And when my dad finally died, I was primary caregiver for both of my parents. And when dad died shortly after mom. I was like, okay, this has been a struggle. And I promise you guys, this podcast isn't going to be really morose or anything, but just, uh, it was a rough time. I handled it. I had a good therapist. Um, but, um, sorry, I was trying to thought you can edit this. Okay. But yeah, so my dad died and I finally said, okay, I'm going to take care of my own struggles and I'm going to take care of myself. It's been a lot of me taking care of other people. So it's time to do me. So exercise, diet, all that good stuff. And I had this nagging feeling kind of like a, a burning and tickling in my right breast, And I never felt a lump. I couldn't explain it to the doctors very well. I knew that when my, when I raised my shoulder, it would hurt more. And I thought maybe I could dig in and try to find a lump, never found anything. So my first doctor just said, you've got anxiety and because your parents and you're convinced that you also have cancer. And I was like, okay. And so she's prescribed yoga. And so I did yoga. And then I said, actually, I'm going to switch doctors and went to another doctor in the same practice and said, you know, I, I still feel like something's wrong. And she took me a little more seriously, but she decided to focus on the shoulder. So they decided to MRI my shoulder and um, not my breast because my mammogram and ultrasound had been negative for my, just my regular one. I get an ultrasound because I'm high risk. And uh, because those have been negative, then I was clearly just experiencing trauma. Um, now I think people talk about medical gaslighting a lot. And uh, that's definitely something that hits home to me because it was my 
third doctor who I called, um, and I called my gynecologist because she had found my mom's cancer. And I said, she'll at least know my family history and take me seriously, I hope. So she said that I should be seeing the high risk clinic. And so the, there's a, you know, Norton is where I went, the Norton high risk breast health clinic. I think that's some combination of those words. And, uh, it was the doctor in there who did my intake and was like, what, why have you not been getting MRIs? You know, especially with this symptom. So she ordered an MRI. Now this was scheduled for March of 2020. And that is part of my story also in that much like lots of people, I had this care that was suddenly canceled and delayed. And so I had preventive care, diagnostic care, and all of a sudden they're like, we can't do this because it's not essential, which stung on many levels. However, what was essential was my shoulder. So they ended up somehow doing a shoulder MRI and I let them operate on me. I, I just at this point was like, something's wrong, fix it. So I ended up with a shoulder surgery I didn't need. And then it wasn't until September of 2020 when I finally got my breast MRI and it lit up something right away. Before I got home, they called to schedule the biopsy. So I had the diagnosis within a week after that. But yeah, it took about 14 months from my first call to my physician. And, you know, I had delayed that call anyway. So it was a struggle. So, so that's a lot of self-advocating through the healthcare <laughs> system and a fairly complicated healthcare system. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned through that process and, um, you know, some thoughts that you might be able to share with folks as, as they're beginning their journey through this? Yeah, you nailed that. Self-advocating is absolutely the key. And you know your body better than anyone. And it's not about Googling symptoms and going down, you know, a WebMD rabbit hole. It's just about knowing when something is off and trusting yourself. And I found it so difficult to stand up for myself. Like I would come home from my first doctor's just in tears because I wasn't able to respond with, no, actually, I really do think this. And I was hard on myself for that. Um, and I understand that, you know, for me as a woman, it's hard. There are other people who have much more, you know, reasons that doctors don't listen to them, which is upsetting on so many levels. Um, so we have to work even harder to be heard. And that's so frustrating. And I know a hundred percent, if I hadn't already experienced being a patient advocate for both of my parents, that I would never have known to stand up for myself because I saw the same thing happen with both of my parents. My mom went in, she had pancreatic cancer, so no amount would have saved her no matter what, but she went in with symptoms and the doctor said, oh, you just need to lose weight, you know? And then she went in again and the doctor said, oh, you just have diabetes. And it's just, it's frustrating because again, she wouldn't have probably, probably not have beaten that particular cancer, but she would have gotten treatment sooner. And uh, my dad had the same thing with him. He said, there's something wrong with my, he had sinus cancer. He said, there's something wrong. And the doctors put him on different antibiotics for about 18 months. And so them both being suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer just gave me the guts to just scream and fight until I got the diagnosis. Cause I knew something was wrong, but yeah, that's my, I mean, if you know, if you have a bad feeling, then you should follow up on it. I know a lot of doctors, I've been pretty outspoken and some doctors have been upset that I've told women about MRIs as an alternative to mammograms. But mammograms, they're incredible, but they miss a very high percentage. And they miss like 15%. Somebody can fact check me if that's wrong, but 15% or so of, um, of breast cancers are not found on a mammogram. Mine was negative. My mom had breast cancer previously. Hers was never found on a mammogram. 
half my family, literally half my family has had breast cancer that was not seen on a mammogram. We are high risk clearly and with dense tissue, but there are alternatives if you have dense tissue and you suspect a problem. So, Yeah, I think that one thing that I've learned through your journey um, and through anybody's journey is that no two cases of cancer are identical um, and that having to be an advocate and, and be outspoken is important. It's critical. It's also really hard because you're fighting your own cancer journey while also trying to advocate for yourself. Absolutely. And this, you know, I got really lucky with my diagnosis and timing that even though my diagnosis was delayed so much, I still was only stage one. So that just felt incredible. Um, but I also, you know, it was during a pandemic. So every appointment I had was alone. It was early pandemic. You couldn't bring anybody. I was rolled, you know, dropped off at the front door of the hospital for my mastectomy. And just to have to sit there and take it all in and not have somebody next to you recording it or taking notes or asking questions or fighting for you is, is super hard. And again, I think I was just still on a, that rebound of, I just did this for my parents. I know how this works. I know you're saying this to me because this is what you're supposed to say, but can we just, you know, can we skip to the good part? And like, (laughs) let's, let's go ahead. I've done this. I've done this. I promise you, I know my body. So yeah, it's so hard to do. I don't know how I did. I I look back and I go, where did that strength come from? Then I don't know. So so let's talk a little bit about that because there's the physical portion of cancer treatment that that your body has to endure, that you have to endure to get better. But there's also the emotional and the behavioral health side uh, of, of cancer treatment. So can you talk a little bit about your experience there and what you've learned both through your parents' diagnosis, um, but also through your own journey as well? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I sit there and say, I don't know where I, came, I got the strength and I I should have said, oh, I was seeing a behavioral oncologist at the time. So I was actually seeing a behavioral oncologist before my diagnosis entirely because I was caregiver for my mother. And there was a really excellent behavioral oncology program at where she, where she was being treated, which I only knew about because I swim with the person who heads up that so it was a social reason that I knew. I'd never heard of behavioral oncology. And if you're listening, maybe you haven't either. But I would credit any strength, any uh, sanity to the behavioral oncology program. For my mom, she didn't want to go talk to anybody. She wasn't a talker. My dad wasn't a talker. They thought the whole idea of talking about how you feel about cancer was stupid. And I went with them to an appointment. And then <laughs> while I was in there and asking the questions, being... <laughs> listening to my mom going, well, I, I don't know, just it, it is what it is. You know, that was their, their motto. The, the behavioral oncologist said, you know, you qualify to see us. And I didn't realize that at the time. And, and maybe you all don't either that a, a caregiver, a family member can go see the behavioral oncologist without the patient there and HIPAA or not. Let me know if you hear my children. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so yeah, I was already seeing this behavioral oncologist before my diagnosis, before my dad's diagnosis even. So she, it was similar to therapy. She prescribed, but she also talked me through it. And because I was on my mom's HIPAA forms, I was able to talk about my mom's scans sometimes before she had seen the results, which really was helpful as a family because I was prepared when her scans got bad and she didn't know it, but I could tell dad and we could kind of make choices on her treatment with her a little more informed, but having that, 
that person who is so informed in every aspect of cancer, not just the disease itself, but she's, you know, these people say see patients and they see the family members and, uh, they're, they're a specialized form of therapist that I just cannot recommend enough. Once I was diagnosed, nobody mentioned it to me and I kicked and screamed and I was like, don't you have a behavioral oncology program? And then they're like, oh yeah, we do. But it's, and so, I mean, I already knew because I was already a patient, but, um, whenever I, a friend of mine is diagnosed, which is far too often these days, it seems I always, my one piece of obnoxious advice, and everyone has a piece of obnoxious advice for somebody who's recently diagnosed with cancer, but mine is just get a referral to behavioral straight away. So you have somebody to talk to who's not your family and who understands what it's like. It, yeah, it was so helpful. So talking about family and um, referencing your children in the background, uh, <laughs> and we, we love that about this. Uh can you talk a little bit about being the primary caregiver in your your immediate family while also going through you know your cancer diagnosis um, and because that it's it's impactful to not just the patient but to to the patient's whole family it really is it was a struggle um, I was really grateful that my husband who normally travels for work four days a week he was home because of the pandemic so the kids at least had that but it, it was challenging for me to try to pretend because I'm not good at pretending, but pretend that I was feeling well when I wasn't um, and pretend that I was not worried when I wasn't. So we ended up being probably overly honest with our kids, mostly because they had just seen both of my parents die. And so to them, you know, at the time they were seven and four um, or eight, something like that. Um, they, gosh, it's only been a year. Wow. So their experience with cancer was an ugly one. And it was with old people who were not strong and I was in pretty good shape and had a very different diagnosis. So explaining that to them was hard, but the behavioral oncology actually really helped with that. They referred me to some programs that Norton offered that were free to the family that I had no idea existed where the kids and I went in and um, they did some art therapy with them. There's also a music therapist, which he was the only person I saw that I knew on the day of my huge mastectomy because my husband couldn't come. I didn't, I, I knew the surgeon because he had operated on my mom, but the the music therapist came into my bed and actually like talked to me before and calmed me down. So it was great. Um, but yeah, having small children, it just all seemed insane. To, honestly, it was in the middle of a pandemic pre-vaccine. My parents had just died. My kids were little. I had just, you know, gotten free time back from being a caregiver. And then suddenly I get a cancer diagnosis. It was dumb. It was just dumb. <laughs> I had written a, a memoir about caregiving for my parents that was actually not as dark as it sounds, but um, I was just putting the final touches on it when I got my diagnosis. And now I just like, it's still in the can. I feel like I've got a whole other chapter to write, or I have to rewrite it with some new goggles on because- Or a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> um, having had- you know, get the, getting the cancer diagnosis on your own is so different from being a caregiver. And it's and having seen it through the caregiver's eyes, it's, it's even scarier. <laughs> you, you've witnessed it from both sides and you know, I don't want to put this burden on my family. Um, which of course, if you're listening and you have cancer, you are not a burden. Your family wants nothing more than to take care of you, but it's so hard to see that in the moment. 
So uh, you mentioned writing, and um, I know that you're a musician and an artist and incredibly talented in so many ways. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done to kind of help yourself post-surgery and and during your recovery? Yeah, for me, creating anything and particularly creating things that can communicate with other people and get some sort of conversation going has been my sanity throughout it. Um, even if it's just an Instagram post where I write that I'm feeling terrible because usually what happens is somebody else jumps in and it's weird. They always say, thank you for, for your honesty, which confuses me because I don't know any other way. It's just, it is what it is. And I it wouldn't occur to me to be like, Oh, everything's great. Um, I know plenty of people who do that and that's fine. But what that did for me was open up this conversation with a lot of other people. So I've met, you know, my cancer friends and uh, all over the world. So writing for me, number one, not, not even music, just like I am primarily a musician, but writing prose, writing a blog, writing in my journal, just writing a quick post about how I'm feeling really helped me feel connected in a time of the world where connection was really hard to find. And when I was just, you know, in bed stuck. So that helped my mental health a lot. And um, it also helped me know what questions to ask doctors, you know, because other people, sometimes it's obnoxious when they have ideas, but sometimes they have actually really great ideas. And you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. So it was helpful. Uh, I think we should also mention that you are recently a, um, I will call it a TikTok star. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Might be perhaps more with your husband, but, um, yeah, fair. Uh, but, but, you know, <laughs> you've used some of your different mediums to, to talk about cancer and, and really have open conversations about this. You know, what reaction have you gotten from people and, and has that empowered people to, to tell their story as well? I think it has. And it surprises me every day. Just yesterday I was at the, the swimming pool for my kids swim practice. And some woman came up to me and just said, Hey, I read every, post that you write. And I just wanted to tell you, you know, and she shared her story and just hearing that I forget because it is my phone, you know, I'm staring at the phone and we're still pretty locked down. We go to swim team and that's about it. Um, and so I forget that when I type this and I send it off into the ether that people are reading it, I try to put my phone away and have some sort of balance, but, um, seeing a person in real life who, said straight up that she reads it and she appreciates it reminded me that it's actually, it does serve a bigger purpose than just me, you know, feeling better by getting it off my chest. It's uh, it creates a conversation and something that really surprised me was within the first six months of me. Um, I, I was uh, me basically going on Twitter and telling my story or my blog about how hard it was for me to get my diagnosis and how I was dismissed by three, two and a half doctors. Um, that whole storyline, <laughs> basically like at least 15 women messaged me privately that they had had similar experiences. And then I lost count of the number of women who finally booked their mammogram because of me hammering on about it, just going on. And because of that caught something really early. I have a, several actually pre, like people whose phone numbers I've got in my phone who were diagnosed with a stage one tumor because they had the same sort of weird tickling burning and insisted on another type of scan. So theirs were caught on ultrasounds, not MRIs, but their mammograms had been normal and they felt something wrong. And they actually messaged me and said, you know, I would not normally have done this, but I followed up with my doctor and they ordered an ultrasound and guess what? So 
while I never want to see that diagnosis from people, I was thrilled that they felt empowered to, um, to fight for themselves. Well, I think that to me shows the importance of community um, and that nobody should go on a cancer journey by themselves. Um, you know, plenty of us have family support, but we also need our friend support and our community support of the different organizations that, that, you know, whether it's behavioral health or meal plans or whatever it takes to, to just put left foot in front of right foot and, and walk through this journey. Absolutely. And that was hard for me because I'm an only child and I've always been self-employed and I've always taken weird pride in being able to take care of myself. And as a cancer patient, you just can't, I mean, I'm sure you, Maybe you could, but it's not a good idea to do that. You need to be focusing your energy on healing and resting and sleeping and advocating for yourself. Something that I always tell people is that this meal train, I always offer to set up a meal train for somebody. My child is upset with his brother right now. Um, I always tell people that you should just do the meal train and they say, oh no, I feel bad. I don't want to put anyone out. I don't want to accept help. And I tell them that, I understand that completely, but people want to help and they can't, there's nothing they can do to heal you what they can do. And it's just a culture thing. They can drop off a pizza or order Thai food or make you a casserole. And it's not your job, of course, to make them feel better, but allowing accepting help from them uh, is, it goes a long way also for your, your support system, your immediate support system. So like my husband who he appreciated the meals more than anybody, I couldn't eat them half the time, but like he suddenly didn't have to decide what's for dinner. And I think so many people forget about just the emotional, mental load of um, little things like that, like deciding what's for dinner is really hard. So the best thing that happened when I was, you know, sick, recovering from surgery was just when somebody showed up with food and when they didn't even say, what do you want? Like none of that, just here's what you're having. That was amazing. And it, I know that it helped my husband a lot. So yeah, that can, you nailed it. The community is everything. So as we close here, I want to pass along a magic wand to you. Uh, and that magic wand gives you the power to fix, adjust, et cetera, one part of the healthcare system or society that um, you think would help improve people's access to cancer treatment or healthier lives or, or what have you. So what, what, how would you, how would you make adjustments to, to your story um, to your, your story has turned out well, but, but your journey was a little tougher than it probably needed to be. How, how would you fix that? I, gosh, I have so many thoughts. Okay. On you get two. I get, no, it's okay. Well, okay. I was going to turn one into two by some sort of like, tricky writing way, but okay, I'll get to, um, the first one is just believe your patients. And, um, I think that it's not something against doctors. I'm, I think that a lot of it has to do with the systems in which they work, whether it's a hospital system or whatever they're, you know, horses, not zebras, the old thing. And, um, I, I think that knowing your patients well, and if you know that the patient you have is somebody who maybe hasn't come in 500 times before, um, just believe them when they have a strange symptom that would have saved me a lot of heartache and time. Um, but my kind of number one answer that I think we maybe could fix because that first one seems kind of challenged for the current system um, is just to automatically list all of the resources available 
to a cancer patient and those little books and pamphlets they give you are overwhelming. I feel like just one document that says, here's the social worker. They help you with talk therapy. Here's the behavioral oncologist. They can do talk therapy and prescribe, you know, Xanax to help you sleep or whatever it is that you need. Um, and you know, here is the art therapy and the music therapy, and here are resources for your family. And here is just that sort of list. That's all in one place. Um, my number one, of course, is the behavioral oncology. I found them the absolute key to not losing my mind. And my husband still sees the behavioral oncologist just that he qualified for because he was my caregiver. And it just, that particular, I, I can't believe that most people I talk to who are cancer patients have never even heard of it. It blows my mind because I've just found it so helpful. So yeah, my magic wand is, is a combination, but primarily mental health and just let people know that they have access to it and it will help. All right. With that, Bridget, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Ben. This is fun. Thanks for being a part of our conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share on social media. We are back each month with a new episode. Please join us next time. Ooh.